G'day and welcome to Grad Chat. This is your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. So today I'm very, very excited because we're actually in the studio again. Yay! Yay! And so, so happy about that. And uh, I would like to introduce you today to my partner in crime for the day, Megan McAllister, who is doing a PhD in kinesiology and health studies under the supervision of Dr. Jessica Salinger. Welcome to Grad Chat, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm glad you wanted to come in. Before we talk about Megan's research, there was an area I wanted to share with you uh, with some work that she has done. Megan was involved in conducting an ergonomic survey to investigate how everyone adapted to working from home. So first, Megan, could you tell us about before that study that you did, what is the Queen, because you're a part of the Queen's Ergonomics Consulting Program. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is, your role, and why you got involved? Yeah, most certainly. So the Queen's Ergonomics Consulting Program, I'm just going to call it QECP for short. Yes, we love our acronyms. Yes, yes. Basically, what we do is we deliver these ergonomic assessments to anyone who's working on the Queen's campus. And the purpose of an ergonomic assessment is to make sure that you're comfortable in your workstation. So we go in, we adjust things like your chair, your monitor, any equipment that you're using, we want to make sure that it's fitting you properly. Mm -hmm. And so usually this is done in person at your office on campus. And that's all great. And we can make adjustments on the spot. We can see how you're working. So that's sort of the purpose of QECP. But obviously working from home and with the sort of stricter guidelines at the beginning and, you know, needing to keep to ourselves as much as possible, we couldn't do these ergonomic assessments anymore. Right. So like everyone else, we had to pivot in our own way. And we thought this is an opportunity to see how our ergonomic assessments and the training that we're giving people on campus, how does that translate to the home office? Right. So, Colette, you mentioned that, you know, you realized right away, oh, this kitchen table is not going to do it. I need to go downstairs. I need to go to a a chair that's more comfortable than a desk that's at the right height. And those are the sorts of things that we're teaching people on campus. And we wanted to see if we could pull that from this home office environment, right? right? So. That's sort of the, the link between QECP, what we are, who we, what we do, and then being at home and having all these staff and, and faculty members working from home and what sort of service we could still offer. Now, I must admit, I was naughty because I filled in the survey and another part was, if you wanted to, was to provide some photographs That's of right. you sitting at your new desk at home, etc. And I didn't do it. Um, not sure why, because I know, well, I know why I needed someone else to take the photo of me <laughs> sitting there. Yes. And I never quite got around to doing that. So I do apologise for that. But luckily, you got enough people doing that to sort of, did you want that in terms of to help with the survey or just to help the individual? Yeah, so it was kind of a win-win because anyone who submitted those pictures 
we in turn gave them sort of a an equivalent of an assessment report that they would have received if we did an in-person assessment. And so what we did was we took these pictures and there were some pretty specific instructions, which is why a lot of people, I think, shied away from doing it. It was a little bit complicated, but we needed those different views of the workstation to be able to provide this sort of objective assessment, right? And so that that was nice for the employee and quite a few people still provided pictures. So no sweat call it. The study still worked out just fine. (laughs) But yeah, so they received a report that kind of gave them some ideas of ways that could improve their workstation at home without breaking the bank. Because, of course, we were still optimistic that we get to work on campus again someday soon. So, yes, that was the nice thing for the employee or for the participant in the Mm -hmm. study. But then on our end, we were able to take those pictures and sort of rank workstations if you want to put it that way in terms of the equipment that's existing how it's fitting the person right and then we could match that with this other outcome measure that we sort of created I guess in the study because one of the questions was just what equipment exists in your workstation right so if you're working on a couch or in your bed you don't have much equipment with you right so that's sort of indicative of a fairly poor workstation if you want to put it that way. So what we did was we matched the pictures and what sort of equipment existed in the pictures with our sort of check mark, if you will, of the the sort of equipment that people were saying that they had in the survey. And so it it gave us this sort of cross validation of Mm -hmm. different questions in the survey. So whether they actually answered it correctly. Well, we could sort of check that, (laughs) right? Extrapolate that. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. A validation, if you will. (laughs) So without the pictures... What were you finding from just the written information that people provided you? Yeah, so we had, you know, quite a lengthy survey and and there were three main pieces that we were interested in. The first was the workstation. We've talked about that, just knowing what pieces of equipment are um, available to the participant. So we asked a fairly lengthy list, I guess, of different equipment options like a kitchen table, a countertop, a height adjustable sort of sit to stand workstation, because those were all scored differently. Right. So that was sort of the equipment workstation side of things. And then we asked about ergonomic training. And so this is where we got a sense of whether people had an in-person office assessment on campus before moving to working from home. And that could have happened at any point. It didn't Mm -hmm. have to be, you know, in the month before. Just at some point, did you receive some sort of ergonomic training? Right. And then the third and probably most important part was this idea of pain or discomfort since working from home. So we were really interested in seeing sort of a pre-post measure. So if you can recall, which is now, you know, a year and a half later, when we sent out the survey, it was much sooner. But when you were working in the office on campus, you would rate your pain in these different body regions from zero to 100. So low back pain, upper pain. Exactly. Yeah. Neck pain, arm pain. Yeah. Yeah. We had, I think, something like 30 different body regions that you would just select on this sort of pain map is what you call it. Um, just, you know, a, a human body and you would go click where you have pain and then you would rate that pain. And what we did was we looked at the change in pain. So since working from home, you get, the, you know, you've rated your pain in this area and you had said it was this before. Right. And, you know, really shockingly, over half of the people had worsening pain since working from home. Right. 
And perhaps even scarier is that over 30% reported new pain. So pain that they didn't have before when they were working on campus have now, you know, discovered this new tension in their neck or their arms are really sore now that they're working from home. So that was kind of an interesting finding in that, yes, it's nice to be able to just roll out of bed in the morning and start your work day in your PJs, but it also comes with a consequence of perhaps not being in this ergonomic position and that takes its toll on your muscles and on your body. I think the survey, even though it was done early in the pandemic, and it'd be interesting to see if people's um, answers have changed right. um, after all this time, but now we're having an opportunity to come back to campus. I think it's going to be important because more offices around, not just on campus here, but other businesses are trying to figure out how many people do actually need to be on campus or can they continue to work from home? But as we know, if someone's asking to work from home, there's some pretty strict guidelines of, well, do you realise we will only provide this? And so do you have this, this and this to make sure you don't get sick? Because one of the things you don't want is then for them to go on sick leave because... Absolutely. They've got back pain, da 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 mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a tricky thing. It's very much a balance. It is yeah. a balance. So what your results could sort of help influence in this, say, the university environment of, well, is that going to work for that particular person? Because they've already, not that you can share those results, but mm-hmm. they're the kind of questions they need to ask. Absolutely. And even, you know, as on a more broad or, or general conclusion from that would be, there has to be this sort of minimum or baseline workstation accessibility, To, to right? be acceptable. Yeah. To be able to say, yes, you're okay to work from home. Exactly. You don't need top-of-the-line top furniture, but you still need something that will allow you to be in this sort of neutral mm-hmm. position. And it doesn't have to be very costly, but there should be a minimum standard. And, I, and that's very, very important. And it was interesting, too, because I know we're only talking about ergonomics here, but... I would be interested to see how people's eyesight is because I know myself, my eyesight really got bad, not bad, got worse. And I mean, <laughs> clearly it was getting bad anyway because I am getting older. But I think having been on the screen so much all day has yes. made a big difference to what I can see from a screen and then looking away. Absolutely. And then when if I'm reading a book or, or paper, I now have three sets of glasses for three different reasons. <laughs> So it kind of makes things a little different. So that's and yeah. then and then I've come back into the office, and of course now I use one big screen with my laptop screen. But with the ergonomic assessment I did a few years ago, mm-hmm. it was perfect at the time. I had two great big screens. My eyesight wasn't so bad. Now I've switched one of the big screens to a laptop screen. I can hardly see it. I have right. to get so close, but my the way my station is now, I'm too far away. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to think about getting another big screen again kind of thing. So it's interesting, again, what the pandemic has done. Definitely. And shown us. So I may need another assessment. That's what I'm just putting. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you bring up a good point, it because it's not only the equipment that you have, but it's also knowing what's working and what isn't working, mm-hmm. right? So another important piece of that puzzle is this knowledge translation or this sort of training that we can provide because yeah you're probably going to be working you know in some sort of hybrid fashion for a long time so knowing how to adjust a workstation and how the equipment is supposed to fit you is in my opinion equally as important as actually having the equipment so moving forward though knowing that more people well 
some people are going to want to continue to work from home mm -hmm. and, and maybe in their job it's not going to be an issue because they're not um, you know, student facing, that kind of thing, or a service in that sense, in the mm -hmm. same way. Do you, will you be able to do like Zoom sort of um, assessments for those people to make sure that they are going to be okay at home? Yes. So um, we're sort of in the early pilot sort of testing stages of this, but the idea would be to provide these virtual assessments. So sort of in a multi-stage process, I guess. Um, although you didn't like to do the pictures, hopefully more people, <laughs> if they request an assessment, they'll be willing to do the pictures. But that would be sort of a starting point is, right. okay, give us a sense of your workstation. And then we sort of develop this preliminary assessment based on the pictures. And then we meet over Zoom or Teams or whatever virtual platform. And we go through, you know, the assessment findings, what we thought could be issues and how we could mitigate any risk or potential risk, risk that we see. So there, there's definitely the opportunity for virtual assessments. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to quickly become a reality that we need to to provide some sort of mm -hmm. online or, or virtual. Well, because we can't, because one of the guidelines, I think, if I remember reading it correctly, is if you're working from home, you have to prove you have a suitable chair and table. Right. Because what we're providing is a computer. Yes. But you need to make sure you've got this and this. So, mm -hmm. um, Which goes back to the minimum standard, right? Right. And if you don't have that, then... I, I'm not sure who's responsible for it just quite yet, but it needs to show up at some point in, in the workstation. Yeah. So that that was fabulous what you did. And I thought, you know, that was a great topic I wanted to bring forward. And yeah. of course, you got involved in that because you're in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies. And that's one of the programs that as a grad student, that's right. you can get involved in. So kudos to you for doing that, because I'm sure you've learned lots. I have. Yes. Thank you. And of course, your area that you work in is looking at in, in, in biomechanics stream of kinesiology, mm -hmm. which I love biomechanics. It's very fascinating. When, when I was back in the day, only bachelor's, back in the day. So you're working in that, but you're looking at the relationship between biomechanics and neuromechanics. Can yeah. you tell us what that is? <laughs> yeah, it's not a very well-defined... I'm assuming the, the body with the brain. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, so biomechanics is very much the body, right? We are moving, there are forces acting on us. Biomechanics is really just studying that sort of effect of those external forces on the human body and looking at us moving and, and sort of making these inferences based on How the joints work and, and you know, the, the levers and all those sorts of that's things. That's all biomechanics, mm -hmm. right. But there's this deeper layer that's equally important and that's how the brain is sending all these messages to our body to move the way that we move, right? Right, right. And so that's the more neuroscience-y part of it and how the nervous system works, how all these messages are getting from our brain to our muscles. And so we sort of termed ourselves neuromechanics because we're... Love it. Yeah. Very nice. Sort of trying to put it all together and understand the how behind the movements now. Right. So we're we're very much interested now in, in not only looking at people move, but trying to understand why and how they're moving the way that they move. And you're specifically looking at walking. That's right. Right. So you're looking at, well, I could say just for the hips and the legs down, but there's other things too, because you use your arms as well when you're walking. So tell us a little bit about 
why you're looking at the, the walking part of it. Mm-hmm. So walking seems to be this very simple movement, right? We learn it where, when we're very young and we just keep walking for our whole life. But there's a lot of choices that we're making when we're walking. Mm-hmm. And that's where the sort of neuroscience brain nervous system part comes into play. Sure, we can look at people walk and from a biomechanics perspective, we can, you know, analyze their joint movements and see the forces acting at each joint and, and whatever. And we've done that for many years. But now we want to see how people are making the choices that they're making. So mm-hmm. I walk at a very different speed than you walk. And my step length is very different and, because and my legs gait. are shorter. And the gait is different, and, right? Yes, exactly. And so the idea in our lab is now to try to understand how we're making those choices. So how our brain is working to choose between these hundreds of thousands of different options to walk the way that we walk. And it seems very simple from the outside. But if you were to break that down and see... You know, if you're walking on ice, if you're walking up a hill, if you're walking down the street, if it's really crowded, you're going to change the way that you walk, whether you know it or not. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to understand the the sort of mechanism, I guess, behind that. So the mechanism not being the fact that you've got stiff joints. It could be, you know, what else is is having an impact there on your decision, as you said. Yes. An unconscious decision, but it is happening. That's right. Yeah, and... I think one of the most fascinating things that we've discovered fairly recently and that, you know, we've hinted at for many, many years. And by we, I just mean the research community as a whole. We are sort of inherently lazy. So we pick these, we make these choices because Mm -hmm. they cost us less calories. So we're spending less energy. energy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Although we, you know, we like to eat a lot, but we don't like to spend that energy if we don't need to. So I walk in a way that's the cheapest way to walk for me. And if I were to put you in our sort of paradigm in the lab, I would find the same thing for you. We just naturally and, you know, implicitly without knowing, we make these choices because they're energetically efficient or optimal. So you need to be talking to the exercise physiologists. Bring them in as well. That's right. They're right upstairs, which is nice in kinesiology, right? Because we have all these different branches that all look at how humans are working and moving and so it's really nice to be able to collaborate between each other in in it's interesting you you talk about the way people walk and I remember even in high school I had to do a talk about walking and so I talked about you know this person walks like this and have you ever seen people walking there you know the big tough guy you know with the swag swagger Uh that they have and and that's a conscious effort of doing the swag right. kind of thing, as opposed to this just happens. Yes. <laughs> and then I talk about my gran, God bless her, who used to say she has the granny shuffle. Uh-huh. She never really picked up the feet. It was this little shuffle. That's and right. see myself doing it now, and I laugh every time I do it because I really, <laughs> gran, thank you, uh-huh. kind, of, kind of thing. So it's all these sorts of things that are happening, and, and some, are, some are deliberate. Yes. Like I said, perhaps the swag. Yeah. Um, and some uh, because of your physiology, your makeup, of mm-hmm. how you joint, like I said, whether your joints are work, working and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And those are what we think of as different objectives, if right. you will. So that the swagger is a very conscious objective, right? You want to walk that way. And so that comes at a trade-off because I'm willing to bet that that swagger walk is not really the energetically optimal way to walk. Not energy efficient. No. So they're going to be burning more calories, but they're getting the walk that they want because they're choosing to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's still 
fascinating in the sense that your brain is making those decisions, but it's picking what to prioritize, I guess, in, mm-hmm. in sort of this field of options. And just like your grand with the shuffle, the goal for that walk was to to stay upright, to not fall over, right? And yep. so at that point, speed is not the main goal. It's really to not fall over. So you're going right. to adjust your steps to make sure that you're well balanced. Right. And it's interesting too, when you, you look at babies yeah in that first year where they're starting to learn they're really unstable Mm -hmm. aren't they when they're trying to walk and that's where the arms come out more to try and keep them stable yeah and so again is that a conscious effort to put your arms out or is that the brain that's just told them this This is what you need to do yeah exactly and it's it's so how are you you measuring that part because are you looking because i would then you'd think you'd have to work with the neuroscientist yeah slice the brain and see how everything's working things on little patches on the heads yeah well we we don't do that although we we very much are open to collaborations so (laughs) neuroscience if you're listening (laughs) but no so what we do in our lab is we actually use um what are called exoskeletons right so there's these there's little robotic devices basically that we attach to people's limbs and in our case they're attached to the ankle okay and we're basically just leveraging these devices to make a different way of walking more optimal Mm -hmm. so i mentioned that we're you know creatures that like to walk in an efficient way so if we make that new way to walk more efficient how do we as humans adapt to that new way to walk and that's what we oh, okay. sort of make up in our lab is this artificial new environment. Right. And then we can measure things like how quickly people adapt to it, what sort of information they need, how much they adapt. Those are all different outcome measures, I guess, mm-hmm. that will allow us to understand the adaptation process and, and start to build this sort of link between the brain and the body. And the brain and the body. Yeah, without putting too much measurement tools around the person right because we still want them to be able to move the way that they would in so field are you measuring for instance are you measuring things like foot pressure in one way or angles Mm -hmm. of things so angles of limbs hips potentially if the hips are going out more in one one way than another yeah so we have this very expensive treadmill in our Uh, lab it's called a split belt instrumented treadmill so the idea is the left and the right legs move on these independent treadmill belts so you can make them move at different speeds if you want to but they are also embedded with these force plates, right? each of them. And so the force plates will measure, you know, every time you step on the force plate, there's this reaction force from the force plate that gets measured. Right. And then it allows you to measure things like how much force you're putting on each force plate separately, but also things like step frequency. So how quickly you're walking right. or taking steps, how long your steps are. And that's really biomechanics, right? right? Those are all parameters that we measure quite frequently in biomechanics. Right. And of course, the angles of the joints. Yes, that as well. We have uh, what's called motion capture system, which will allow us to measure the joint angles. And then you can, you know, between the force plates and the motion capture system, you can measure things like joint moments and the power at each joint. And then you can, you can go in all sorts of directions. So it's good that you're doing this in the lab. Mm-hmm. But how does this translate to the broader community? What are you trying to show to the broader community? That's a great question. So I think fundamentally, just understanding the cognitive nature or the, the way that the brain and the nervous system works 
allows us to get a better understanding of how we're moving and why we're moving. So if you're a coach and you're training your athletes, you want to understand how their body is going to adapt to the coaching cues or techniques that you're giving them, right? right? Because maybe you're giving their brain something that they don't, they can't change because they have this sort of inherent or unconscious objective that's way different from what you're well, telling you look them. at the marathon walkers mm-hmm. i mean that that's such an unnatural looking absolutely way of walking but mm-hmm. that's the way they do it to be efficient exactly yeah so it's that's that's one way to do it right is, is through sport and coaching and understanding how we're moving and what the different objectives are there but also in terms of clinical rehabilitation right. and this sort of idea of building these assistive devices to help mm-hmm. people move we need to understand how the people are moving. And so the idea in our lab is really understanding that human side of the human machine interaction, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. So there's a lot of research on robotic devices, and we'll leave that to the engineers. But in kinesiology, we're really trying to understand how the human is responding to those devices. I like the way you brought up about the rehabilitation side of things, because that's super, super important. I think we all would like to make sure that if we're fixing ourselves, we don't need an external piece of equipment to help us. Right. We want to be able to do it ourselves. Absolutely. So that's really, really important. So would this be something, too, that you would work with, say, the physical therapists? Yeah. Once you've got your results that you're looking for. Absolutely. So one of our sort of longer term objectives, once we figure things out on on sort of a a healthy, able-bodied population is, okay, how do we translate this to different clinical populations? Mm -hmm. And if I take stroke patients, for example, one of the the sort of unfortunate outcomes of a stroke is often this asymmetric walking, right? Where, you know, the the effective... Particularly on one side. Yeah, exactly. And we naturally want to um, sort of fix that and, and make people walk symmetrically again. But what if that's such a hard thing to do because that's not the energetically optimal way to Mm -hmm. walk anymore. Right. So I think the idea would be if we can understand how we're adapting to, to walk efficiently or energetically in an energetically optimal way, how can we align this idea of symmetry and energy together Mm -hmm. so that we can have these more lasting and enduring rehabilitation strategies and then, yeah, ideally, we don't need those robotic devices in, in certain populations, but we need to understand how we're adapting in order to fix more permanently, I guess. Yes, more permanently. Yeah. Well, this could this project could go in all sorts of directions because, like I said, you know, you mentioned you could work with some engineers to create an artificial way to help them walk in a more efficient way. Yes. Uh, you could work with a neuroscientist mm-hmm. to see what well, you know when if they're working this way or for these particular reasons, such as they've had a stroke. What's the brain saying mm-hmm. at the time? What's showing up in the brain? Because we all see those pictures of the brain popping up. Yeah, that's being activated, etc. So what's what's happening there? The different ways of of walking. Absolutely. And then of course with the physical therapists and the doctors of getting people back on their feet, so to speak. Yes. Uh, and doing that so it's it's a huge project it's so multidisciplinary yeah. and I think that's what makes it so interesting because it touches so many different fields mm-hmm. and it allows for you know collaborations with just about anyone who's interested in humans mm-hmm. really because it's it's very fundamental in the sense that we're just trying to understand how people move and I think just about any field could use, could use information it. like that yeah 
so I guess my last question would be, so how does someone with a background in kinesiology get to work with the robotic exoskeletons? Cause <laughs> yeah. Because I, I must admit, I do like gadgets and seeing things. So I would be one of those, give me a chance. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's certainly not something that I thought I would get into when I was starting my graduate career in, in kinesiology. But I think this new field that we call mm. neuromechanics is such a great opportunity for that yeah. because we've sort of figured out, you know, how to measure human movement, but now we need to go beyond that and, and look at things that we can't necessarily see. And these robotic devices will allow us to use them as tools, yes. right? So on the engineer side, it's important to be able to develop those things and, and to further, you know, the advancement of the tool itself. But from a kinesiology perspective, it's more just leveraging it as a tool right. to still focus on the human side. Right. And so I think, you know, how did I get into it? It was really this idea of understanding how we're moving beyond just the pure biomechanics, if you will. Yes. And luckily, my supervisor was into the same thing. And she had already done work with exoskeletons. So it was sort of natural for the lab to progress in that way. Um, but I would say I am not in any means ready to, or by any means ready to just develop an exoskeleton. I'm very far from being an engineer, but I, I really appreciate that we're able to still leverage those tools. I think what's nice is that, like you, you mentioned it very clearly, that you're not looking at the gadgets, you're looking at the the person's body, yes. the, the natural body. Right. And I think that's very, very important. And I think one of the other things is important, even though you could use these exoskeletons for lots of different reasons, you're working in an area right now where it's not just to improve sports performance, it's for other things too. Yes. Because a lot of times it's very easy. And I went to it myself saying, no, it'd be good for you to see how the marathon walkers, yep. et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it's the... It's how this can help the general population. Absolutely. For the the most basic of things that we want to be able to do is walk. Yeah. It's such an important really aspect. Absolutely. I think the yeah, the impact is is beyond just, you know, and, and not to discredit sport enhancement and that's a very important thing, but it, it does touch the broader community, I think, in terms mm -hmm. of clinical rehabilitation, in terms of just being independent and being able to walk, right? I think that's a very important piece. Well, you're doing some amazing work. Thank you. Um, both in your robot, not robotics, both in your robotic exoskeleton lab, mm -hmm. as well as your what you're doing with the ergonomic group, the yes. QECP. That's right. So thank you very much for coming on the show and explaining all that to us, both sections, or both vital for what we're trying to do moving forward. Thank you. And so really appreciate that. So thank you for that. Hope you had a lot of fun doing it. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on the air. And being able to do it in person was a great experience. See, again, in person. Yes. Masks <laughs> on. Mas masks are still on, yes. But, but we're getting there. So thank you very much for that. So that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. So don't forget, you can download this show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.